So we are in our series in the book of Genesis called New Beginnings. And the further we get into this book, the more shocked I am at the depth, but also the simplicity of this amazing book. I mean, the stories in this, they're so simple, a child could understand the stories, yet they are so profound that the greatest scholars, even today, are finding new discoveries of this in this book, Genesis, through these stories. And the story we've been looking at for the last few weeks is the story of Joseph. And Joseph is this teenager who gets sold into slavery by his brothers. And no matter what seems to happen to Joseph, somehow God orchestrates these evil events that happen to him to bring about this amazing good, to bring about his success, and to do the thing that is humanity's new goal. Our new goal, my new goal, your new goal is to get back to Eden. And Joseph Every time something horrible happens to him, it's like humanity takes this giant leap back towards Eden. And today what we're going to do something is a little different. So when we read the Bible, when I'm, when I'm going through the Bible and we're reading the Word, it's really helpful to look really close at it and then take a 10,000-foot bird's eye view. I mean, if you want to understand the Bible, which I would, I would argue is probably one of the most important things for you to do in life, if not the most... If you want to understand it, you got to look at the whole thing all at once and keep that story in mind, and then you got to get really close to it. But today, we're going to do something different. We're not going to do 10,000 foot, and we're not going to do right up close and personal. We're going to hover around 5,000 to 1,000 feet. So we're going to basically be this bird's eye view, but we're going to come down and we're going to hover up high. And when we do that, what we're going to find in this story is that there's been a shift and we're meant to see this shift. So we've been looking at Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and now we get to Joseph. And the shift for Joseph is that, okay, so Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they get to have these, like God opens up the heavens. Angels are ascending and descending. They're seeing it happen. I mean, that's what uh, Jacob sees. And they're actually having conversations with God, like this crazy thing where they're hearing the audible voice of God, but not just that, they're like face-to-face -face with God. But then with Joseph, God gets quiet. He's not absent, but he has a quiet presence. The Spirit of God is with him. And that's what we, I think most of us, are experiencing today. I mean, if you guys have seen heavens open up and angels descending and descending and ascending, like, let me know about that because I would love to hear about it. But I think primarily you and I are hearing the quiet presence of God. And... Because of Joseph experiencing God in a little bit of a different way, Joseph has discovered a secret that you need to discover, that I need to discover. And that is that God is sovereignly in control. He's orchestrating all of these things that are happening in your life. Joseph knows that it is true. He's discovered the secret that God is working behind the scenes, and then Joseph has discovered this truth. If God is doing that, then he simply needs to ask the question, God, if you're orchestrating all of these things in my life, what must I do next? So he's letting God handle everything, but he's also asking the question. It's the one thing that you need to ask when you know that God is doing all of this work in your life. You ask God this question, 
what must I then do? So in this great, there's a great book, uh, The Lord of the Rings, and they've made it into a movie. If you haven't seen it, I don't know where you have been. But in this movie, there's this little, tiny, insignificant, unheroic type character who's called a hobbit. And all of a sudden, through these series of events, this hobbit has come into possession of this very dangerous ring that turns whoever has it into doing some horribly evil things. And it's in his possession. He's like, I got to get rid of this. So his mentor, who is a wizard, his name is Gandalf. He's like, I got to get rid of this. So he tries to give it to Gandalf. And I know it sounds weird, but it's an amazing story. So he tries to give him this ring. And Gandalf's like, no, I can't take it. I have too much power to take it. I'll try to do good with it. But through it, it's going to be do all this evil stuff, which basically is, by the way, the opposite of our story today. No matter what evil you try to do to Joseph, God does good. But so Gandalf's like, I can't take this ring. He has too much power or something. But this little hobbit has a different kind of power because the very next thing he does, this this is probably the most important scene in the movie or the book because it sets off, it starts off this adventure. He says, what must I do? And for you and I, because we know that God is divinely orchestrating events in our life, bringing us to these moments, like these pivotal moments in our life where we need to ask this question, but you got to ask it. Every single day, you wake up in the morning, you need to be asking God because he's in control, he's orchestrating everything. What must I do then, God? So here's where we're going today. we got four points. A lot of it has to do with the sovereignty of God, which means God is in control and he's good. He's like a king, but he's a great king. He's the good king. He's the gracious king. So here's our four points. Quiet sovereignty in your success. Second, quiet sovereignty in your transformation. Quiet sovereignty in your reconciliation. This is with others. And then quiet sovereignty in your witness. So success, transformation, reconciliation, and witness. And because we're looking at this from the middle, like we're not a bird and we're not like way high up in the, up in the air and we're not really up close to personal with the text, but we're doing like this hovering thing, I'm going to read some verses and then talk about them and then read some verses and talk about them. So we're going to be in Genesis 39 to start out. There's some Bibles around you if you want to grab them. Genesis 39, I'm going to read verses 2 and 4 and then jump to 8 and 9 and then jump to 21 and 23. But look, they're going to be up on the screen. So if you can't follow along, just look up on the screen. Here we go. The Lord was with Joseph, like a quiet presence, and he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. Okay, now, so Joseph's super successful in this house, but then this guy, Potiphar, the master, his wife tries to get with Joseph. And Joseph's like, no, 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 no. So here, we pick up here. But he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. And he's put everything that he has in my charge. He's not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you. Because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? So then, 
this master's wife is super mad. She feels denied. Her pride is hurt. So she makes up a story and says that Joseph actually tried to get with her, so his master throws him in prison. Pick back up. Genesis thirty nine twenty one. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him, and whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. And this kind of just continues throughout the Joseph story. Now, the overarching theme here in the story of Joseph is that God caused everything that he did to succeed. Even the evil that was done to him would somehow work out for his success and to accomplish God's grand purposes through him. So there's two things at play. There's two questions that Joseph knows. First, who is God? Joseph knows that God is the quiet, sovereign God who's in control of all things. And second, he knows what he must do. So first, we gotta, we got to hone in on this, the quiet sovereignty of God. So God is good. To be sovereign means he's good, he's in control, he's the king. And you can trust him. No matter what is happening in your life, his hands are on it and it is for good. Now, this causes our human minds to bend in a way that we don't necessarily understand, like a pencil you're bending, and at some point it hits its breaking point. Our minds can't comprehend it, but God's word does a great word, great job at telling us how to understand it. And here, so here, we're trying to bend our minds to understand that God is sovereign, because here's what we say, God is sovereign and he's good. So then the question becomes, well, what's with all the evil? What's with all the suffering that's happening in my life? Because if God is good and he's in control, then I should not be suffering, or it must mean that God isn't good, or he isn't in control. And so our minds bend and aren't able to understand that, but then the Bible helps us, and it says, oh, that's easy. You're not in Eden anymore, but God's bringing you back. Okay, so that, that, does, that, that works for a minute, but if you really start thinking about it, then you say, but wait, why did we leave Eden? Oh, because we ate of the tree. Why did we eat of the tree? Why in the world did God put the tree in the middle of the garden? I mean, if God is good and in control, why would he put the tree there? So then we're going to look at that through two lenses. So first lens is, is like, what must we do, God? Okay, what must we do? Okay, God is putting it there. He's giving us this choice. Will we pick him? We're made good. Like, we're not perfect all the way yet, but we have all of the potential for perfection in Eden. So what will we do? Well, we do the wrong thing, and, and we pick the fruit, and that's what messes everything up. And so, okay, we failed, but at least God's like, hey, I want you to love me. But, but that's the lens that we look through most of the time. But I want to challenge us to look through a different lens and say, why did God do it? Like, what's his sovereign purpose here? If we look at it through the lens of God being the king, there's a different answer. And the answer is God put the tree there for love. You say, wait, what? That doesn't make any sense. It does. It makes beautiful sense. Because Jesus says, no greater love is there than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. God is perfection. 
And if perfect love looks like laying down your life for your friends, then in order for God to be perfect, he must then display the perfection of love because the Bible actually calls him love, which means that God must lay down his life for his friends in order for there to be perfection in him and of him. And so he makes this tree of death so that one day he'll hang on it. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. But we say, okay, wait, hold on. Then does that mean that at some point before Jesus went to the cross that God wasn't perfect? Well, no. Because time is part of creation. Listen to this, don't miss this. Time is part of creation. And if time is part of creation, then that means that God has at some point and always does operate outside of creation because he's creator. Therefore, God is not subject to time. Therefore, for God, all things happen simultaneously. Therefore, God is always perfect. Talk about our minds bending in a way we can't understand. But the point of this, if this is true, which it is, then that means this. The worst things that can happen to you, God make sure that good and love come out of it. That is true. Then the worst things that happen, God will make sure that love and good come out of it. So for Joseph, he has these absolutely horrible things happen to him. I mean, we really just kind of skip over it in the story, but he's a teenager. He has this dream that his brothers are going to one day bow down to him. So he tells his brothers, big mistake, but he tells them. So they throw him in this pit to leave him to die. But instead they say, you know what, let's just sell him into slavery. So they sell him into slavery. I mean, he's young. He's probably 13 years old. So really, I mean, that's, that'll mess with you for a long time. So then he, he's a slave. And, but his master is this guy named Potiphar, who is essentially the general of the entire army. He's very powerful. And then God starts doing work in this, growing Joseph. Potiphar like, loves, this, loves this guy. He's making everything that Potter does go well. Potiphar does go well. So he says, I'm just giving everything to you. All of it's in, in your charge. So things are going well. And then Potiphar's wife looks at him the Bible says he's a handsome man, so she goes for him, and he says no, and then she goes for him the next day, he says no, and he keeps saying no, and then finally she's had enough of it, so she makes up this story that he tried to get with her. Well, the master finds out about it and sends him to the prison. Well, this is horrible. This is another tragic thing. He did the right thing. It doesn't work out for very good. He's saying to God, what must I do next? Well, don't get with Potiphar's wife. Okay, I won't do it. He goes in prison. God, what are you doing to me? But then the prison guard says, wow, look at what happens when Joseph is in charge of everything. I'm just going to let him run this prison. So the prisoner is actually running the prison, which is mind-boggling, and all these things, great things start happening to him. Um, and then eventually he's able to interpret dreams. We'll get to that another time. And as that happens, the Pharaoh hears about it, brings him up into all of this power. Eventually he's running all of Egypt. Everything he's doing, it's in his hands. He's making all these great things happen. There's about to be a famine, but he's prepared for it, and he's going to end up essentially ruling the whole world because of it. All right. Why did all of this work out for him? I mean, that's amazing. Why did it all work out so good? Though tragic, but also so good. Because God was with him but not the way that you think he's with him. I mean, it's not like because God is with him, he has this magic pill of success or he drinks this potion of luck that makes everything that he does, even if he does something horrible, go well for him. 
He has the quiet presence of God, which means that there are two things happening. First, no doubt, God is orchestrating some things. But second, second, he becomes wise. Now, how did he become so wise? Because he's praised for his wisdom. Everything he do works out well. He's wise because of this. God has orchestrated the events to happen in his life that would deposit wisdom in him. In other words, there's a pairing. God's sovereignty, his kingship, he's in control of everything that's happening to Joseph. Yet, Joseph is taking responsibility for his life. He's taking responsibility for the things that's happening. This is the weird, strange thing that our minds can't fully wrap around, the sovereignty of God and human responsibility. You are responsible for your life, but God is completely in control of everything. I don't, just, just stick with me. So it essentially becomes like this dance where God is completely in control, but Joseph has this responsibility to dance with God, and he's learning to dance better with wisdom as he's following God's lead. So he becomes, his life becomes this dance of wisdom because he's following after God. He's following God's lead. Now, if you're like me, you're saying, well, I want to be successful. Therefore, I should have some wisdom. So pray for wisdom. That's a good thing. But be careful. Because in order for Joseph to become wise, he had to walk through difficulties, struggles, pain, loneliness. But all of those things, because God was with him, made him wiser. God orchestrated it, but because it happened and God was with him. Now, if God had not been with him, maybe things he doesn't become wise, but because God is with him and he's aware of the quiet presence of God, he becomes an incredibly wise man and becomes incredibly successful. But both are working together, the sovereignty of God and his responsibility. So he becomes transformed into this kind of guy that Pharaoh looks at and says, I could give you all that I have and it would be a good move on my part. So he does it. But Joseph had to learn to trust that God, God's hand was at work all the way through it and trust that God is disciplining him just enough before he breaks so that he grows wise. I mean, that sounds painful, like to be disciplined just enough before you break, but it makes you wise. So be careful what you're praying for. So we had this series a while back in the book of Proverbs, which is all about wisdom. And what we found is that generally speaking, the wiser you are, the more successful you will be. Now, sometimes that doesn't happen. Sometimes the wisest people are not successful because this world isn't fair. And you only know that if you're wise. But, generally speaking, if you are wise, you will be successful. But, in order for that to happen, you must first answer this question. In the book of Proverbs, it's screaming at you to know the answer, who is God? And the answer is that he is the quietly sovereign God who sometimes speaks through phones. I don't know if you guys heard that back there. That, that might have been God. I don't know. Maybe a phone. It would sound a little bit robotic if it was God. But, okay, you want wisdom? Book of Proverbs? you got to know who God is. He's the quietly sovereign God first. And then second, if you want wisdom, you must say to God, what must I do? The answer is obey him. Do the next right thing. And so what happens is God begins to give you tests along the way that will expose 
your character and your wisdom so you have a mirror in front of you showing what's really going on in your life. I mean, you think you're pretty wise, but then something happens and you look in the mirror and you're like, oh, that wasn't very smart of me. And now you're getting wiser. If you look in the mirror and you say, that was smart of me, then you're not growing in wisdom. So it exposes what's going on. That's what happens with Joseph. He has this test with the Potiphar's wife. What's he going to do? It's a test. And by enduring the struggle, in the end, God gives him more wisdom through it. Right? He's thrown into jail, though. This is a horrible thing. But then Joseph realizes, oh, but God will still bring good out of this evil that's been done to me. It takes an incredibly wise person and trusting person to be able to say that of God. We don't just automatically go, poof, we're this way. It's something that we grow into. It's what God's doing. He's at work. He had to learn to trust God. And some of you, in the very close future, are going to be called to become wiser. But in that process, right happens right next before that, is you're going to have to walk through some tests, some difficulties, and some struggles. But if you will cling to God and God is with you through it, you will find yourself much wiser when you come out the other side. For some of you, you're in the middle of the difficulties right now. And it feels like God has turned his back on you. You can remember days where you felt like you understood his presence, but right now you feel like you don't understand him at all. And this is another lesson in wisdom. I mean, it is if you can learn to trust God when it feels like he is far off, I mean, that is next level wisdom type stuff. And you grow into this, which means in order to do that, you've got to be tested, which means at some point in your life, you've experienced the quiet presence of God, but then he goes away and you're like, God, where are you? And on the other side of it, you say, okay, okay, God, I saw what you were doing there. But in the middle of it, you don't. So you know what you need? You need people who have gone through it first. And some of you are that. Some of you have already passed through this and you're wiser because You've passed through some difficulties and you need to look around at the people who are going through it and you need to be there for them and guide them through it. Say, I've been through this. And I'm telling you, God's with you. He's probably more present with you than he was when you felt like he was present. Some of you need to be there for those people. And that is what Joseph ends up doing in the end. And that's what brought him to success. He trusted God so much, and he grew in wisdom because he was clinging to God through all of the struggles. And what that does is it, is it transforms you. And this is our next point, the sovereignty of God and your transformation because it made him focus not on himself but others. So this is, this is where we're moving. So transformation means you become not so self-focused anymore. So I'm going to introduce you to another character now. The other character is Joseph's brother, Judah. Judah is potentially actually more important than Joseph, though he doesn't get as much attention. And here's the story of Judah. So Judah has this younger brother, Joseph, and Joseph is bragging about how one day Judah will be bowing down to him. And so Judah says, okay, we're going to get you. So Judah, it's his idea to sell Joseph into slavery. So he does it. And then 
Judah decides, I mean, Judah is a mess. So then he decides, which is wrong to do. He's like, after we did this, he leaves his home. He leaves his family. He's like, he's done with it. So he goes off. He meets a girl. Um, she has some babies, and he has some kids. And then one of his kids gets married to this woman, Tamar, and he dies. And then, well, I won't get into that because that'll be confusing. But anyways, he's got this daughter-in-law, and it's his responsibility to care for her now. In this culture, it's, it's 100% Judah's responsibility to care for his daughter-in-law because his son's died, but he doesn't. He doesn't do what he's supposed to do. He doesn't do what he must do. He does the opposite. He doesn't care for her. And she, and we can't get into this, but basically she devises this plan that she's going to trick his fa- her father-in-law into sleeping with her. So, I know. So then she goes down this road and Judah's going to this, he's got this guy's weekend, and so she posts up on this road, and she puts a veil on, dresses herself up to look like a prostitute, and he sees her, and he's like, okay, I'm going to go and talk to this prostitute. So he does, and he doesn't know that it's his daughter-in-law, so he ends up sleeping with her. Still doesn't know it's her, and then they start talking about payment, and she's like, uh, I'll take a goat. That would, that, would be, that would be fine, and he's like, okay, that sounds good. That's apparently the payment back then for these types of things. So she says, well, how do I know you're going to give me the goat? How about you give me the ring that you have or the signet, you give me your cord and you give me uh, your, your staff. So these are things that men carried around then. And so she has those things. Then it's all over. Judah finds out his daughter-in-law is pregnant by some random guy. He's angry. So he says to his family, let's go get her you go get her and burn her alive. I mean, he is mad. So they get her, they, they chase her down, they pull her out, and they're taking her to go burn her alive. And she says, wait, give this cord, this staff, and this signet to Judah and tell him, I am pregnant by the man who these belong to. And as soon as he sees this and hears these words, he's absolutely cut to the core. He's convicted of his sin. He's just like all of his sin and all of his life. He's just like, oh, story ends. Like, well, that was weird and random. Where did that come from? Well, then a few chapters later, which would be years later, we meet Judah again. He's a completely different man. What has happened? Well, He's been convicted of his sin, but then, so he meets Joseph. So, oh God, gosh. Okay, let me just take you through. So, so Judah is with his brothers now. He's a completely different man, and there's a famine. So his dad's like, go to Egypt. We heard there's this guy that's selling a whole bunch of food there. Go to that guy, and let's get some food. So all the brothers go, and they meet this man who has all the food. It's Joseph. But they don't know it, but Joseph recognizes them. And he wants to test them because these are his brothers that sold them into slavery. So he wants to know, are they going to be the type of people that do this again? So what Joseph finds is that he meets a very different type of person in Judah. So Joseph makes him think he's about to to take the youngest brother, Benjamin. This isn't a whole series of events, but listen, here's the bottom line. Here's Here's what you need to know. Judah says this. Before he takes the brother. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy. In other words, he's saying, let me take the place. So selfish Judah, always thinking of himself, is now saying, 
I will be sacrificed. I'll live a life of slavery if you let my younger brother go. I can't bear the evil that would find my father, is what he says. Now, that was Genesis 44. Here's the point. Judah has been transformed from before always thinking of himself, me, 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 to the type of person who is willing to sacrifice the rest of his life in order to save his younger brother. And Judah's transformation is a transformation that you have to take, that I have to take, all of us must take, and it's a transformation where we forget of ourselves. Meaning this, we obsess of ourselves. We do. I mean, it's something that humans do. You are obsessed with yourself, and it's pretty much impossible not to be because you're seeing the world through your eyes, but you must take this impossible thing that God calls you to do and stop obsessing about yourself. So listen to, listen to this thing that Jesus says. He's so confusing when he talks sometimes. He says, if you want to if, if find yourself, then you have to lose yourself. But if you want to make sure you lose yourself, then keep looking for yourself. What does that mean? Well, I'll tell you what it means. He says, if you want to find who you are, stop obsessing about finding who you are because all you're doing is thinking about yourself. And to be human is to be other-focused. I mean, the flourishing of humanity, the way we were meant to be, is so focused on others that we're not thinking of ourselves. I mean, that's the you that you've always been created to become. But it's so hard for you to do it. So Jesus says, just stop thinking of yourself because if you don't stop thinking of yourself, eventually you're going to all crumble in on yourself and you're just going to be consumed with yourself and you're going to find yourself in a hell. Like just consumed by your own self-obsession. So by the way, in eternity, you don't think about yourself at all. You don't have to because you're 100% completely content. So... You say, well, that sounds amazing. Well, Paul, Paul tells us something. He says he has found the secret to being content even now in this life. Well, what's a secret? Because we got to know what it is. I mean, I want to be content. You want to be content. What is this big secret, Paul? Paul says this, that Christ is always enough. No matter what you're going through, if you have everything, if you have nothing, if you have Christ, you can be at rest because he's always enough for you. Contentment. And guess what that does? You are now freed and released from your self-obsession. Now, okay, great. What's God's quiet, sovereign role in all of this? Exactly what he did with Judah. He convicted him of a sin. The Holy Spirit's job is to convict you of your sin. The Holy Spirit's job is to cut your heart open, pull out all the messy stuff that's in there, put it right in your face and say, did you know that this was there? You say, no, I didn't. Thank you for that, Holy Spirit. This has been a great exercise for me. But no, it really is, because guess what? Here's what happens. You become convicted to the core. You drop to your knees and you say, oh my gosh, God, what am I going to do? I mean, how can I have forgiveness? I mean, can you forgive me, God? What do I do about this? And he gives you grace. And as soon as he gives you that grace, then you go, oh my gosh, this is amazing. And I don't want to take my eyes off of this grace. I've never experienced anything so amazing. It's beautiful. It's captivating. Well, guess what's just happened to you? You've been captivated by something that isn't you, finally. And you can't look away. So look, you've been freed. God's grace did it for you. And so his quiet sovereignty has actually allowed you to sin. 
though he didn't want you to sin, but he allows it so at the perfect moment he could stab you with that knife of conviction and then give you the grace that you so long for. And when you find it, you say, this is the most irresistible thing I've ever seen in my life. I cannot take my eyes off of it. And when you do that, you become freed from your self-obsession. I mean, when you really understand Christianity, just listen to this. Tell me if you think this is true. If you understand Christianity, here's what it feels like. You've been convicted of a horrible sin. You're on death row. And the day comes where you're going to sit down in that electric chair. And you sit down and you're strapped in. And the lever puller guy's about to pull it. And then all of a sudden in the crowd, because there's a crowd there, and the, someone in the crowd says, wait. And it's the judge who convicted you, and he stands up and he says, I want to release him of all the sins. And the people cry out, wait, no, justice must be done. And the lever puller says, if you want that, Mr. Judge, you're going to have to sit down in his place. And so the judge walks up, and he unstraps you, and he lifts you up, and he looks at you in the face. And it's so, like he's looking at you hard because he's about to do something, and he tells you something important. He says, I love you. And then he moves you to the side, and he sits down in that electric chair, strapped up, and then the lever is pulled. That's what Christianity feels like. And when something like that happens to somebody, they are filled with so much gratitude that they say, I cannot waste my life anymore. I will not think of myself again, but I will focus on others, and I will make my life a life that is worth living, a meaningful life. It's the kind of person who's forgotten about themselves because of something that someone has done for them that is so transformational that they just start obsessing over others and for them. And, and by the way, the sin of self-obsession, it doesn't have to look like someone who's arrogant. It can actually look like someone who's incredibly self-loathing. Because what do you think the self-loathing person is doing? They're thinking of themselves. And they're thinking about how horrible they are. And all they're doing is looking at their sin. And gosh, I mean, doesn't that sound horrible to just look at the messiness of you every single day, all day? That will drive somebody crazy. That will drive someone into a personal hell. And so the self-loathing person needs grace so that they'll get their attention off of themselves and see the God of grace. And finally, this irresistible grace starts screaming in their life and it's all they can see and they've been transformed. And when you become someone that's transformed like that, you start seeing something happen in your life. All these relationships that you had in the past that kind of fell apart are being reconciled. So look at this. Genesis 42, this is our third point, reconciliation. Genesis 42, 6 through 11. Now Joseph was a governor over the land. He was the one who had sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. By the way, Joseph's dream, my brothers are going to be bowing to me. It's happening right here. So Joseph saw his brothers, recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from, he said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, No, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants, servants have never been spies. All right, this is fantastic. 
And it's fantastic because they are basing the, they are basing the fact that they aren't spies on their honesty. No, 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 no. We're honest men, Joseph. Are they? Because if you look at the story, in fact, their whole life is built on a lie because what they did is they sold their brother into slavery and then they told Joseph's father he's been devoured by a wild animal. He's dead. At this point, Joseph's father still thinks he's dead because his brothers have been lying to him all of his life. So their life is built on this lie. And Joseph hears them say that they're honest, so give them the benefit of the doubt. He tests them to see if they've been transformed. Now, this is very wise of him, very wise. So Joseph keeps saying, no, you're dishonest. And they say, no, 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 we are, we're honest. And they say, no, you're not honest. They say, yes, we are. And so what he's trying to figure out is, should he be reconciled to them? And by the way, you need to know this, the younger brother's name is Benjamin. He wasn't there at this meeting. And he wasn't there when Joseph was sold into slavery. Joseph loves Benjamin. And Benjamin's not here at this meeting. So he tells them, okay, let's see if you're honest. You say you have this brother, go get him and bring him back. So they leave. And they go back for a little bit with their food, and then they they run out of food. And the dad's like, hey, go get some food. And so they go back and they bring Benjamin. Well, Joseph's not done testing them. So they get back and Joseph's like, here's some food. But he puts this valuable cup in Benjamin's food sack. They go out, they're going back home, and then Joseph says to his people, go chase him down. And they go and open up Joseph's, or Benjamin's food sack, and there's the cup there, and they take him, and they're like, He's, he belongs to Joseph now. But they don't know that it's Joseph, and so they think they've lost their brother. And then Judah, transformed Judah, who would have in the past said, take him. I'm getting out of here, goes back to Joseph. Again, he still doesn't know it's Joseph, and he says, take me instead. And when Joseph hears it, he's cut to the core because he sees his brother is not the same brother he knew in the past. He melts in his heart, and he reveals who he is. He says, Joseph, it's me, it's Joseph, and they all embrace, and it's a beautiful thing. And then here are the words of reconciliation in Genesis 45. He says, and now, Joseph's talking to his brothers, And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves. I mean, their lives have been haunted by this thing. And Joseph's just like, don't be distressed. Don't be angry with yourselves. You sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the, the land for two years. And there's yet another five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve. For you... A remnant on the earth, and to keep alive for you many survivors. I mean, he could have got even with them, but he doesn't. He reconciles with them, forgives them, and reconciles them. He already forgave them in his heart, but he wasn't sure if he should be reconciled with them. Now, okay, this is very wise of him. He's a wise man. But God... Here's what Joseph realizes. God has been quietly working in Joseph's life and Judah's life, working about transformation, which means if you're going to be reconciled with somebody, there must be transformation first. You've got to forgive everybody. 
but reconciliation might not happen yet, or maybe it shouldn't happen yet. You must be wise to figure it out, but after transformation, you should seek reconciliation. And what this is, is it's just an amazing picture of God working behind the scenes in people's life, orchestrating events, orchestrating transformation so that the right time, perfect reconciliation happens. So the Bible's telling you, all of you, that you have to forgive. If there's someone you haven't forgive, like run out of here right now and go forgive them. But don't be so quick to reconcile your relationships. Because some of those people that have hurt you in the past have not changed. And you need to wait until there's evidence that God has done work in their life and then you can seek reconciliation. So some of you right now, you need to forgive somebody because, and that's why reconciliation has, hasn't happened. Like they've forgiven you, they've changed, but you're just stubborn and you won't forgive them. Forgive them, be changed, and then go reconcile. But, but some of you have forgiven someone and you might be too quick. You should be quick to forgive, but don't be quick to reconcile. You gotta have wisdom in knowing when you should reconcile those relationships. All right. Now, why is that important? Well, this is our last point. If you're this type of person, you will be an amazing witness to the glory and the beauty and the worth of God. And you will live more into your purpose and you will have a more fulfilled life. So, quiet sovereignty and your witness. This is one quick verse. And Pharaoh, he's talking to his servants and he says this about Joseph. Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Now, Pharaoh is not a man of God. In fact, Pharaoh kind of thinks of himself as a bit of a God. But Joseph, by his wisdom and the working of God in his life, becomes a witness to the real God and his glory and his beauty and his worth. God's, do you know this, that God's plan for Joseph's family is that they would be a blessing to all nations, and none of his forefathers have really pulled it off until him, where he rises to power, and he's in command of the greatest empire at the time in the area, and then he becomes this blessing to all the nations. God has brought him through so much struggle, so much pain, so much heartache, and it's given him this wisdom because God has been with him, and now he's able to be a blessing to people and to be a witness to the glory, beauty, and worth of God. Now, part of the problem is for most people, we're not so interested in being a witness to the glory, beauty, and worth of God because we're still so self-obsessed. That's why transformation has to happen first. Get the attention off of you, get it on God, then you want him to be glorified. But for all of you right now, God is bringing you through the wilderness, through struggles, so that one day you might be transformed into the type of person that becomes an amazing witness to the glory, beauty, and worth of God. And sometimes, the way to be a best witness is to simply be good at your job. That's what Joseph does. He's so good at his job that his masters or his bosses say, I'm just going to give everything to you. Put them in your hands because I trust you. I don't even have to check up on you. I don't even have to watch you. I just know you're going to take care of things. So here's everything. Now, this, this kind of extends further into all of life. And, and what it's getting, I mean, don't just be a good worker. 
be a godly person. Go to God. Have a good spiritual life. Have a good church life. Have a good family life. Have a good friendship life. Have a good just like you're doing good at the things that you should be doing good at, which means you're going to God. You're a good husband. You're a good wife. You're a good parent. You're a good friend. Why? So that the people in your life could see you and say, man, the spirit of God is with them. And then they give glory to God because of you. Now, God is orchestrating things in your life right now. And he's giving you opportunities to be able to be a witness to him, of him, his glory, beauty, and worth. In other words, to say, hey, you have found something that people need to find. Your eyes have, the the gaze of your eyes have met the irresistible grace of God. And you see it. And there's people who need to know about it, and it will completely transform their life. And maybe God's bringing you through some struggles to get there. You live your life as a witness in the way you live. Just, I'm living for God. So you live a good life. But then that gives credibility to the words that you then one day speak to them. And I'm telling you, the first time you actually speak the words of what God has done in your life and how Jesus really is crazy as it sounds, is one who's come to save you, transform you, redeem you, restore you. You tell someone about it and, and they catch it. When that happens to you, you're going to be hooked. And here's why. Because you're going to relive it all over again the same day when you felt what it felt like to find the grace of God. Because you're going to see your friend, and you're going to see them in the electric chair. And you're going to see how Christ comes, and he unbuckles them, and he sits in their place. And you're going to see what it does to them and how it transforms their life. And then you're going to be in awe of it. But you're also going to remember that it's been done for you all over again. So I get this privilege to do a lot of weddings. And something I love to do is after the wedding ceremony is over, I go out and I talk to people who are there just in the seats. They're part of the wedding. They're not part of the wedding. They're watching the wedding. And I like especially to talk to people who are a bit older because they've been married for a while. And something happens to them. The love that they have for each other gets rekindled because they're remembering their wedding day. But it's a little bit different because they've been through a lot together. They've struggled together. And after all of that, the love is actually richer. And it's more meaningful. And it's just like you see this spark in them all over again, but it's like a flame now. So that same thing happens to the person who shares their faith with someone and they become a Christian because it just all gets rekindled and you remember why God is your God, as crazy as it is. You're doing the thing that's required of you. Like, what must you do? Be a witness. It's the question. What must you do? And you know, Jesus asked this question. He's in the garden. He's been betrayed. The next day, he knows it's coming. He's about to be hanging on that tree of death. And he's praying to his father. Quiet presence of his father. And you know what he prays? He says, Father, let this cup pass from me. Now, what does that mean? It means, God, let this this spiritual death, let this death, let this destruction, let this wrath that's coming to me tomorrow, like, just let it go away if that's possible. But then he says, but your will be done. Meaning, 
God, Father, I don't want to do this, but I do because I want to do what I must. The next day, he finds himself there, hanging on the tree. Why? So you, like Joseph, might be brought out of slavery to, to something worse, though. Slavery to sin and death, and been set free now from that sin and death because Christ became a slave to sin and death on the cross for you. Why else? So you might experience transformation like Judah did. Because Jesus, on the cross, trades places with you. He changes, he sits in the chair where you were meant to sit. Why else? So that you can experience reconciliation. Not just with your friends, not just with your family, but with the living God who we've rebelled against. Why else? So that you might live into this tremendous purpose and meaning of bringing his kingdom here on the earth, his quiet kingdom, his kingdom that comes in stealthily, his kingdom that comes in through his people in the way that we live, in the words that we speak, until one day this kingdom is roaring like a lion and it sets all hurting death and pain in its own grave and all things are made right. You want to find something that's worth living for? Stop looking at yourself. Look at the grace of God, and when you catch it, you're going to find meaning and purpose come flooding into your life. And then you'll know, what must I do? You'll ask that question, and you'll know the answer. You must go to Christ, and you must take others with you, and you must bring his kingdom. That's a reason to live for. That's a life worth living. All right, let me pray for us. God, we pray that we would now be enamored by your grace, this irresistible grace that has been given to us, not because we earned it, but because you just simply are a gracious God. And let that grace fill up all of the rooms in our hearts until grace becomes spilling over, and now we are looking at all those around us, and all we can do is let that grace spill over into the lives of people around us. God, let us be a church of people who are enamored by your grace and can't help but be a witness to your glory and beauty and worth, not in a weird way, but in a passionate way that is authentic and vulnerable. And God, we don't know what's next, but we want to ask the question, what must we do? And so we ask it, God, and we pray that you would carry us, orchestrate our lives into our next thing, our next event, where we ask this question, what must we do? And God, I pray that we would respond 